We are going to be reading from Isaiah 62 today. So if you're using your own Bible or the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, you can open up page Isaiah, uh, to Isaiah 62, which is on page 621 of the pew Bible. Isaiah 62, page 621. As we hear God's word read, let's stand to show respect for God. Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls of Jerusalem I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. You may be seated as we pray. God, as we look to your word, we know that we need to hear from you. We need to understand what you have said. We don't want to uh, grasp after the words of man. We want to have your mind and your thoughts. So help us today. By your spirit, help us to understand what you said, to take it to heart. Help me as I preach. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today I'm going to offend some people, but I need to tell you the truth. I'm a cynic. Maybe it's because when I was in middle school, I played P.T. Barnum, And uh, in that play, he said, there's a sucker born every minute. 
Maybe it's because I remember watching Guys and Dolls where Guy Masterson says, uh, tells some advice his dad gave. He says, one of these days in your travels, a guy is going to show you a brand new deck of cards on which the seal is not yet broken. Then this guy is going to offer to bet you that he can make the jack of spades jump out of this brand new deck of cards and squirt cider in your ear. But son, do not accept this bet because as sure as you stand there, you're going to wind up with an ear full of cider. All these different promises and products of uh, something like a utopia, I take to be pie in the sky, grander, uh, maybe a little bit of a placebo effect kicks in, but I am a cynic. Maybe it's because I've seen too many George Foreman grills at garage sales. <laughs> but somehow I think that if eating a clove of garlic every day is the secret to good health, that more people would be eating a clove of garlic. Maybe if I think the Rio neck toner would have really gotten rid of my double chin, my, uh, my grandmother could have benefited from that and would have told me about it too. Maybe I think that PX90 is effective not because PX90 is so, effect, or so amazing, but because anybody who exercises strenuously for a certain period of time with a certain amount of discipline is going to get into shape. When the politicians promise that their plan and electing them is going to solve all the problems that the country is facing, I doubt it. When the motivational speaker stands up and tells me, you can do anything you set your mind to, my eyes just kind of roll back. So if I touched on something that's one of your favorites, if you have a diet that you think is the best thing ever, if you have some cleaning product that hung the moon, I'm sure it works for you. Please don't be offended, but I'm a cynic. And so I'll be frank with you. Our passage today sounds like one of those too-good-to-be-true promises. You see, this, this chapter that we read toward the end of Isaiah comes at a crucial time in the history of Israel. Isaiah prophesied during the tail end of the decline of Israel's monarchy. So Israel, under David, of course, had had some, some good years. Things had gone well. They'd conquered a lot of lands. They'd had been an influential player in the world. And there were several kings after them. Think of Solomon and, and all the nations coming to hear Solomon's wisdom. But by the time that Isaiah was prophesying, this empire called the Assyrians had risen up. And they were encroaching upon Israel. They were the dominant power in the land. And if you know anything about the Assyrians, they were an awful terrible regime. They make Hitler or Mussolini look tame. They did horrible, horrible things. And here they were, breathing down Israel's throat, and by the time of the end of Israel's prophecy, Israel was basically under their thumb. They had their own king, but he was doing whatever the Assyrian king told them. So these were dark days for Israel. 
But the message of Isaiah primarily throughout the book is a dark message too. You see, a lot of the Israelites at the time were thinking, well, God promised that the Davidic king is going to be, uh, you know, the Davidic kingdom is going to be the great kingdom. So yeah, things are going a little tough right now, but they're going to turn around. And as Isaiah comes along and says, no, the reason you are where you are right now is because how you have treated Yahweh, the Lord God. And judgment is coming. Not only are the Assyrians going to be bringing judgment, but God is going to raise up the Babylonians to bring judgment. Things are going to be very dark for you. And it's because of your sinfulness. So Isaiah is not a, uh, you know, daisies and butterflies kind of book. There's no Pollyanna in Daisy, or in Isaiah. But then toward the end of Isaiah, things take a turn, a surprising turn. Because Isaiah does proclaim that after this darkness is over, a new light will shine, a good day will come. And that's where Isaiah 62 falls. This chapter falls in the section that's proclaiming that there's going to be a restored kingdom. Look at some of these features of this kingdom. I want to point out five as we look at Isaiah 62. First, Isaiah promises a complete reversal of their present fortunes. So look at verse 2. At the end, he says, You shall be called by a new name. And so in verse 4, he says, look, right now, because of how things are for you and the judgment that's coming, you're called forsaken and desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and married. Or look at verse 12, this new name. The holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, sought out a city not forsaken, So Isaiah is saying, things are going to change, complete reversal. And he tells us in this chapter that it's going to be brought about by a Savior. So this reversal is going to be brought about by a Savior. Look at verse 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So how is this reversal going to come? A savior is going to come who brings both judgment on your enemies and reward for you. And the decisive characteristic of this new city, this new Zion, will be righteousness. Look at verse 1. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. And what is it the nations see in verse 2? The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. Now when you hear righteousness, you can think a little, you know, you might think kind of like a Victorian, you know, prude ideals, you know, We are very righteous, you know, kind of that type of thing where no fun, you know, don't do anything. But righteousness in the Old Testament and the word behind this has to do with the idea of kind of a justice, a place where things are right, where you look at it and you say, this is good, this is right. And certainly 
morality is a part of that. There's a, there's a right morality that's included in that. But it, it's, it's a just society. It's a good society. It's a right society. It's a society that reflects God and his character and his love and his grace and his justice, his mercy. And another trait of this city is it will be announced to all peoples. This is kind of an interesting thing because there's this focus on Zion, which is Israel's capital city, Jerusalem, their mountain. But the announcement of of this good news is actually for all. This is important to see. Look at verse 2, beginning. The nations shall see your righteousness. And all the kings, your glory. This is something to be done for all to see. And then look at verse 10. As they're supposed to go through the gates and get things ready, it says, lift up a signal over the peoples. The peoples, plural there, meaning the different nations, the different peoples all around should see a sign. They should be told of what's happening. The good news is coming. All should hear. And then, verse 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. So the horizon for this good city, this new Zion, this new Jerusalem, is not just Israel. This is news for all the world. The last thing I want to see about this this. this Uh, beautiful picture being painted by Isaiah is that it will reflect the goodness of God's reign. So look at verse 3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. In other words, this this great beautiful city, it's not not for its own thing. This This is a like a, a crown is, is an aspect of the king's beauty in his reign, so this new city, this righteous city, this city whose fortunes have been reversed, that's a bright light for all the nations, this city is a reflection of God who reigns over that city. So the character of God is exhibited in this city. What's happening in the city is a reflection of Upon God. So the message is that God will take desolate, forsaken Zion and save and redeem her, loving her and making her holy. It's kind of far-fetched. Nice little, uh, nice little placebo effect for these people who are despairing, Isaiah. We see what you're doing here. Give them a little opium for the masses to deal with their pain. Religion's good for that, right? Yes, it's it's a beautiful picture that you paint, but it's an unrealistic picture. To think that this could be true In the days when Isaiah was prophesying, in the days when the Assyrian threat is so strong and Israel is so small, I don't think so. 
But I want you to notice, I also want you to notice one other thing of chapter 62. It's something, it's something surprising. I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. I want you to try and pick out what's surprising in these verses. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. God's the one who's going to bring the reversal in this city. It's his Savior that's going to do it. He's the one whose reign will be shown in that city. And yet, verses 6 and 7 say that God is actually going to bring this about by appointing people who will continually, day and night, be bringing the Lord to remembrance. They'll be praying and saying, God, do not forget what you have said in Isaiah 62. So yes, it's unrealistic. Yes, it seems far-fetched. But God says, look, I am going to set up a people and they are going to be committed to praying and praying and praying about this promise until I bring it about. And it seems like Isaiah took the same approach. Did you notice in verse 1 he says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. The same thing the watchmen were not supposed to, they were going to do. They would not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. So yeah, a little far-fetched, a little out there. But he also says, I'm going to keep somebody praying, Day and night, Isaiah's words are going to cry out repeatedly, 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 every time Isaiah's read, until it comes about. So now, fast forward 700 years, open to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is on page 857. Seven hundred years is a long time. The king who was on the throne of England 700 years ago was King Edward II. That's about the amount of time passes from when Isaiah gives this prophecy to when... Jesus was born. Jesus is born, and it's time for the rites of purification. And so Mary takes her little baby Jesus, Joseph, and they head in to the temple to dedicate this baby, or to to have the, the rites of purification done. And we'll pick up at verse 22. And when the time had come for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, And the Holy Spirit was upon him and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death 
before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul as well so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So they're bringing this baby in and God by his spirit prompts this man Simeon to come into the temple at that very occasion. And Mary and Joseph, you know, they they know that God has promised this this Jesus to them that he is going to be the one who will save people from their sins. But they don't know, like they haven't gone around broadcasting that in the temple. This is, they're just coming doing their duty. And so when Simeon walks up and takes this baby in their arms, it's prompted by the Spirit. It's a pretty remarkable thing. But listen, remember, pay attention to what Simeon said in verses 29 through 32. Do you hear the echoes of Isaiah 62? He says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Remember there was going to be a Savior who would come in Isaiah 62 who would bring these things? He says, it's right here. I've seen it. And he says that you have prepared this in the presence of all peoples. Same phrase. You know, the peoples. A signal be raised for the peoples. You have prepared him in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So again, an echo there. And remember it talked about how the kings would see the glory of Israel, and what does he say? And for glory to your people Israel. It's like Simeon saying, look, the one you talked about, the one you promised long ago, he's come. The, the promise of Isaiah 62 now has a face. It's now not just this idea. It's a person. And he's come. The vain hope of Isaiah now has a face and a person attached to it. Still, Seems a little far-fetched, okay? Great. Not coincidence, maybe. Maybe we can explain away his coincidence that Simeon was prompted and comes in and takes this baby. But still, a little baby. Isaiah 62, those are kind of grand, grand hopes. Luke adds an additional comment right after the comment about Simeon. It's really kind of odd. 
Maybe if you're familiar with the story, it, you're, you're so familiar with it, it doesn't strike you as odd, but after this great announcement where Simeon takes up Jesus in his hands and says these things, verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak to him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. What is this widow doing here? Now, in those days, widows were put on the list with orphans as people who are kind of in the most, uh, the most difficult situations, the most destitute of all of society. And in the Greco-Roman world, that culture, the opinion or presence of an impoverished widow would not be something worth noting. So what's she doing here? Why has Luke put her here? But what's, what's more surprising, and what's surprising to me as I dug in and studied here, is there's no explicit connection made to Jesus. It talks about who she was and how she was talking about the redemption of Jerusalem. But it doesn't talk about her interacting with Mary and Joseph. There's no scene where she's with Jesus and takes him in her arms. And even if you look at the phrase, she began to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel, the of him is ambiguous. It could be referring to the child from a paragraph above, or it could be just referring to God, the immediate uh, noun in front of it. So Luke doesn't even say, doesn't even put Jesus' name there, and he could have, and to speak of Jesus to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now some translations go ahead and put in a child to speak of the child, but in the Greek it just says of him, just like it does in our translation. He doesn't even make an explicit connection to Jesus. What is she doing here? I think the key is there at the end of verse 37. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. You remember what Isaiah foretold? This is going to come about, this reversal, but it's going to come about in part because God is going to appoint watchmen who will bring this to the Lord's remembrance night and day. Now we can explain it away as coincidence, right? That's what little old ladies do. They pray. They get all religious. 
but it's more than coincidence. It's actually remarkable. I remember when I was a kid, I lived in Illinois, just outside of Chicago, and we went on a vacation. We went all the way down to Florida to Disney World. And I was walking around Disney World, and at Disney World, I saw somebody I knew. We ran into each other. Now, it's not at all remarkable to think that me from Wheaton, Illinois, and someone else from Wheaton, Illinois could at some point both be in Disney World. That's not all that absurd. But the fact that we were both in the same place at the same time in Disney World is remarkable. It's the timing of it that makes it remarkable. And I think that's what Luke's point is. Look, it says in verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, at the very hour when Simeon has taken up this baby Jesus, prompted by the Holy Spirit, Simeon comes and takes up this baby Jesus and is saying, look, Isaiah 62 now has a face, now has a person associated with it. At that very hour, in that very moment, that time, God brings, enter the scene, Anna the widow, an 84-year-old woman whose society would have just kind of passed over. But Luke draws out, and this woman right here, what was she about? Bringing the Lord to remembrance. Praying with worshiping, fasting, night and day. It's this obscure little detail. With the timing of it converging, you start to think, maybe God is at work. Maybe this Vain hope of Isaiah is not so vain after all. Maybe the, the, the beautiful but unrealistic picture is actually a picture that is being fulfilled before our very eyes. Even for a cynic like me, Even for a cynic like me, I think it's pretty compelling. At the very least, we should keep our eye on this Jesus and see what happens with his life, see what characterizes his life, see what comes of his life. Because if God is orchestrating details like that in such specific fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah... Maybe there's more going on. Maybe this hope is a real hope. In 2004, the Chicago Blackhawks were listed by ESPN as the worst franchise in all of sports. Now, all you who have bragging rights today, because of what the Maple Leafs did the Blackhawks, it was less than 10 years ago. You're just beating the doormat of all of professional sports. I lived in Chicago then. Bill Wirtz owned the Chicago Blackhawks. He was called Dollar Bill because of his penny-pinching ways. The Blackhawks, who were one of the original six, had the second lowest attendance in all the NHL. 
They were the laughing stock of the league. Their hockey games weren't even broadcast in Chicago. You had to go to the game if you wanted to see it. I know of one person, one person in my high school of 2000, I'm sure there were more, but I only knew of one who was a Blackhawks fan. But then I remember right around the time of 2008, coincidentally about the time Bill Wirtz passed away and his son Rocky took over, I started hearing something very different from the Blackhawks. They started talking about, about them on the radio. They were starting to spend money to get the people they needed. They added a guy named Duncan Keith. They drafted a guy named Harry, er, uh, I'm blanking, Taves. Jonathan Taves, thank you. And Patrick Kane. And they started broadcasting their games again on television. They hosted an outdoor game at Wrigley Field. They started changing around how they were structured. As you saw some of these steps being put into place, you started to say, maybe this dismal, abysmal franchise can actually become something. There are signs that what the architect, Rocky Wirtz, is doing might actually be doing something. We might be moving somewhere. Now I know for you hardened Maple Leafs fans, any optimism is false optimism and you might have the same cynicism I do. But to see the reversal in Chicago in less than 10 years is truly breathtaking. It's amazing. Chicago is a Blackhawks town now. It's a town that bleeds red. Everybody's talking about them. Even my sister, my sister who doesn't watch any sports, watched the Stanley Cup last year. I don't mean to make light of what's going on in the scriptures with the Blackhawks comparison. But I'm trying to show you something. That this, this prophetic word in Isaiah 62, that admittedly, Seems like pie-in-the-sky idealism. A vain hope. It's starting to have some signs here in Luke 2 that Luke is drawing our attention to. To say, perhaps, perhaps this Jesus is the one who can come and fulfill these things. Perhaps the hope is not vain after all. And of course, Jesus leads a life that demonstrates these very things. He starts healing those who are sick and infirmed. He starts taking, a, taking an interest in helping those who are poor and oppressed and on the fringe of society. His ethics of love and righteousness start standing out and transforming the things around him. And then most remarkably and unexpectedly, he goes to a cross in complete control of the situation, meek, 
but in control and offers up his life in what he says was a sacrifice for us. And then those disciples huddled in a room, scared because the one they had been following is now dead. See a resurrected Jesus. He appears to many. 500. And then he ascends to heaven. And all the disciples who followed him give themselves in service to his cause. And the fruit of their actions shows that their hearts have been changed. The way they treat one another. The way Jew and Gentile, these clashing cultures that couldn't be brought together are brought together in Christ. The way the orphan and the widow are cared for. And a kingdom of people or the Christian religion is founded. And it's a religion or a kingdom that from its founding onto today has been marked by the very characteristics of justice and righteousness and love. Now, I'm not saying that Christians throughout all time have been perfect or have never done some awful things. But I will say, everywhere you've seen an outpost of authentic Christianity... Not something that just calls itself Christian, but really is taking the gospel seriously, Jesus seriously, and the Bible seriously. Every place you see an outpost of true Christianity, you see it working in the culture to care for the needs of those who need it the most. of Bringing people together. Of loving people who are different than their own. You see it all throughout Africa. You see it all throughout Asia and India. You see it throughout Russia. You see it in different ways in Europe, in the United States, and in Canada. Of course, before Jesus ascended, he said, he is going to return. And when he returns, he's going to bring in this new Jerusalem that Isaiah foretold. So yes, it isn't fully here yet. The promise of Isaiah 62 has not been realized yet. But in these dark and bleak days, you look out on the world and you're discouraged, or you look at your own life and you say, things don't make sense. They're a mess. There's a hope that's not just Pollyanna utopianism. It's a true hope. It's a hope that actually makes sense. That is compelling from scriptures. That one day this Jesus will return. And he'll make all things right. I think there is another lesson that we can learn from Anna though. Maybe it's just an aside lesson. But it's important And that is that God does, in fact, work through our prayers. Little insignificant lady that no one would have noticed 
and yet God had appointed her through her prayers, and her prayers were part of what God used to bring about the salvation of the world. God works through our prayers. Now, what's significant about Anna's prayers is she wasn't on her knees day and night praying, God, I pray that you would, uh, you know, find some long-lost family who'll take care of me, or that you would give me financial resources, or that you would help my health improve. Her prayers were bringing to the remembrance the things that the Lord had said. God, here's what you have said you will do. God, do it. Act. I wonder how many of our prayers are those man-centered prayers. I need help with my job. I need help with this situation. Can you make my life a little better? Can you make it a little less difficult? Here's something I don't like. Can you change it, God? And how many of our prayers are like Anna's prayers? Here's what you said you will do, God, for your kingdom and for your causes in this world. Will you act? We bring you to remembrance, Lord. I don't have anything to hawk you or sell you this Christmas. If you think a Snuggie's all that, go ahead and buy it. If you think a paleo diet is going to be the thing for you, go for it. I won't be doing it. But I do have this news for you. The arrival of Jesus has fulfilled the prophet's hope. Paul said in Romans 15, for whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Not hope like I hope the Leafs win the Stanley Cup this year. Hope based on something sure. God in his providence led Simeon to take this baby and say Isaiah 62 is being fulfilled in him. And at the same time to bring into the scene Anna who had been that watchman on the wall. Just give us that little snapshot that says it might have seen like a vain hope. It might have seen like a little opium for the masses. But it's not. It's sure. And it's true. You might think Christmas isn't a time when we need a lot of hope, right? There's all the optimism in the air. Everyone's friendly and full of joy. But I know in a room like this, society and culture's joy and optimism can ring a little hollow for some of you because your situation's more bleak. It's your first holiday without a loved one. Or maybe it's your 40th holiday without a loved one that you've never had, you've always wanted. Or maybe you're estranged from your family. Or maybe some of the decisions you've made in your life have left you in a bitter position. I don't know. You're without a job. It's a hard world. 
a hard world we live in. But it's a world that God has stepped into and brought hope. And this Jesus that we celebrate this season truly is the light of the world, the hope of the world. And he'll one day return and make all things right. That is the hope we need this Christmas season. Let's pray. God, I thank you that these things that were written long ago were written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So I pray that you would give us hope this day. In Christ's name, amen.